You've probably never thought of them since maybe your high school biology class, but antibiotics are having a moment. As medical researchers scramble to find ways to create treatments for COVID-19, antibodies might be the key to knowing who is and who isn't immune to the virus. Because a vaccine for the virus is unlikely to be made in time, antibodies may be the only tool to find out who can safely interact with others. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is a special live episode of your San Diego News Fix. Jonathan Wozen, you're the Union Tribune's biotech reporter. Let's start with the basics. What are antibodies? Well, thanks for having me on, Dan. It's really fun to get a chance to talk about this. So antibodies are these really important proteins that are part of your natural, normal immune responses. Um, so you can think of them, they're kind of shaped like the letter Y. So if you imagine the capital Y, uh, mm-hmm. that's how they look. And these are molecules that your white blood cells make in response to an infection and generally uh, in response to vaccination. So what antibodies do when they've been made is they stick to the surface of a bacteria, a virus, a a germ. And if they stick tightly enough and if they stick at just the right spot, they can stop that pathogen, that that bacteria, that virus from entering your cell. So antibodies that block a pathogen are called neutralizing antibodies. Uh, There are other antibody functions, and that can include uh, basically flavoring or sort of seasoning up a microbe for immune cells to be more likely uh, to gobble it up. So that's called opsonization. And there are other things like that, but essentially antibodies stick to the surface of a germ uh, and either inactivate it uh, or signal to the rest of the immune system that, hey, this is something we should look at and take care of. And uh, this is the body's kind of number one way of fighting any va- uh, virus, right? Well, it, it's it's definitely up there. It's, uh, you know, part of, you know, when you get a cold or a flu or, or whatever infections you're commonly getting, it's part of the response. Uh, you know, in immunology, I think researchers think about the different main ways that uh, we, we they deal, the immune system deals with infections and, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, simply having an intact, you know, skin or what they call barrier immunity. That, that's typically the main way. Just keep the microbe out. Once it gets inside, there, there are certain immune cells that sort of rush quickly to, to deal with that, that bug, with that pathogen. Um, antibody responses... So I, the only reason I don't say the, the number one way is um, in terms of the timeline of when you get sick, it, it typically takes several days, maybe a week to develop antibody responses because they sort mm-hmm. of depend on other things that happen first in an immune response. But they're a very important aspect of not just how we resolve an infection, but how we protect ourselves uh, going forward. Because what happens is you get these antibody producing cells a lot of them die once the job is done, but some of these cells stick around. So that's called memory. And that's a really important aspect of how you're protected against things that you've gotten in the past. So you don't get them again. So basically it's like, if you get the flu early in the flu season, you're good against that specific flu, you know, assuming that everything else goes correctly as your immune system is supposed to work, right? Yeah. And then the thing with flu, and we don't really know how this is going to work, how it's going to play out with COVID-19 is that the flu is 
kind of a shapeshifter. The virus is always changing a little bit from mm-hmm. one year to the next. And so having protection against, you know, the 2019 flu strain doesn't guarantee that you'll be protected against 2020 unless it happens to be the same. So I think scientists just don't know yet how much the, the virus is uh, going to change. Coronavirus is going to change. They have some early sense, but it's not really clear. Mm-hmm. So now that we understand how they basically work, how do we test for antibodies? So, yeah, this is a good question. So you can measure antibodies from a person's blood. So you could you know, take a little um, syringe full of, of blood, and there are some companies that are working essentially on little uh, prick, uh, finger prick devices. And because these are proteins that immune cells are uh, throwing out or releasing into, into the blood, uh, you can pick them up from the blood. There are different ways to test for them. Um, some tests will basically have a plastic plate that's coated with bits of uh, coronavirus. And so any antibodies that stick to the virus will stick to that plate. And then you can use certain types of chemistry to see that there's an antibody there. Uh, but essentially, it's blood-based uh, tests. Mm-hmm. And San Diego is, of course, the Center for Biotech Research. Uh, what's going on here with uh, researching and hopefully at some point manufacturing these tests? Yeah, so that, that, that's definitely uh, you know, a big part of uh, what I get into in the story. And, and so you know, the FDA back in mid-March, uh, recognizing that there was a lot that we could be learning from antibodies, uh, but that the standard uh, process for getting approval for tests take, takes a while. So they started to allow developers to uh, move forward with tests that haven't gone through that standard approval process. So I think within two or three weeks, like upwards of 70 different companies and, and different developers kind of sprang forward. Uh, so one of those includes uh, Diazyme, which is a local company here in San Diego. And so they have um, an antibody test that, I know they've been working with you know, UCSD Medical Center. They've been talking about uh, working with Scripps Research Institute to, to get that test up and running there as well. Uh, but it, it does what we just talked about. So it takes blood samples and tests yeah. for different types of antibodies. And some antibodies show up kind of earlier in an immune response, and some don't show up until pretty late. So that, that might be able to tell you if somebody was infected a while back um, or if somebody was infected fairly recently, it might actually still be uh, fighting off the infection. So it could give you a little extra information um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the timing uh, of, of disease and recovery. Uh, on, the, on the more academic side, so I spoke to Dennis Burton, who's an antibody expert and uh, actually spent most of his, his career studying HIV antibodies mm-hmm. at, at Scripps Research Institute. So what he... And other colleagues are doing is, you know, they're taking blood from people who survived COVID-19 and they're looking at the antibodies in that blood. And then they're testing those antibodies in the lab uh, to see how well they block the virus from infecting cells. And so some people may have antibodies that work really well at doing this. Other people may have antibodies that don't do this very well at all. And so the idea is maybe if we study the best antibodies and figure out what makes them the best? What parts of the virus are they sticking to? How are they doing that on a molecular level? Uh, we can then sort of reverse engineer a vaccine 
that gets you to make those antibodies. And so the idea is, you know, it would have been helpful maybe to have these antibodies from the get-go. So if you can vaccinate someone to make them, to teach their body to make those antibodies uh, without getting sick, that would be, you know, the ultimate goal. Um, and then there are other efforts locally to uh, sort of look at using antibodies less as a diagnostic and, and less as a marker for how to make a vaccine, but actually as medicine, as a, a therapeutic. So being able to take an antibody that we already know sticks really well to the coronavirus and actually mm -hmm. just give that directly to a person. And so that would probably be most helpful for someone who's either at high risk of, of being exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, or someone who's already infected, but the antibody could help them bring down their level of virus. And so there, there are studies that are happening here uh, to, to look at that as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've kind of hinted at it, but are there any drawbacks or caveats that we have to keep in mind with uh, both antibody research and antibody testing? Because we're looking for a magic bullet here. People suggest that this maybe is one, but what's the reality? Yeah, so there are a lot of things that scientists just don't quite know at this point. Um, and, you know, even though research, COVID-19 research has gone so much more quickly than research goes in general, there, you know, I, I think researchers don't know as much as they'd like to. And one of the things that's unclear in people's natural antibody responses to this disease is actually how helpful those responses are. So are people who are recovering from COVID-19, are they reliably producing protective antibodies? Um, or is it that other aspects of the immune system are really more important than the antibodies in, in clearing the virus and, and, and giving them long-term protection? So we actually don't know for certain uh, when it comes to this disease, how key antibody responses might be. I think there's been some animal work with, with different uh, animal models in the lab that suggest that it, it would be really helpful to have uh, antibodies that can block the virus, but it's just not known for certain. And we also don't know how long these antibody responses last. And, th and that's important for a couple couple different reasons. So, you know, antibody responses to different diseases or different vaccines last for different lengths of time. So if you get a tetanus shot, you know, that's an antibody response. That vaccine stimulates an antibody response that lasts for a really long time. Uh, with, with flu, as we discussed, you have to get vaccinated each year because of the changing nature of the virus. Um, so there's a lot of discussion and debate around how long even uh, the, these antibody responses to the virus last. Um, but basically, if the responses last a long time, and if the antibody responses are very important in stopping, uh, stopping the virus, then those would be two things that would bode well for using antibodies as an indication of who might be able to um, start to come back to work, start to get out of the house, and, and, and how soon we could uh, get the economy moving again. And then just one last little thing uh, that I got into in the story about the difference between a vaccine versus an antibody treatment. Uh, if you give somebody antibodies directly, those antibodies might have some 
um, short-term effect in, in terms of blocking the virus, but mm. eventually they'd be cleared from your system. So the, the strength of a vaccine is that you would teach the body to make antibodies on its own um, and hopefully to, to do so for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So at this point, are there any kind of big stumbling blocks or questions that are just kind of slowing down and confusing scientists? Because the biggest problem with this virus is that it's the first time it's been in humanity. It's only been in humanity for a couple of months. So what are the things that are kind of impeding research? So, I, I, you know, I think that's, that's a, it's a good question. Um, there probably are a few, you know, a few things that are going on right now. One of which is because there are so many different tests that are coming forward in such a short span of time. Uh, there's some issue of quality control. Um, so, you know, when you put out a test, and, and that could be an antibody test, uh, that could be a test that uh, the sort of nose and throat swabs that test the virus's genetic material directly. Uh, you want a test that is really good at giving you a positive result in people who are actually infected or were infected. And you also want a test that's really reliable at giving you a negative result in people who were unexposed or uninfected. And so there are different technical terms for, for that uh, specific, uh, sensitivity and specificity. But ba- basically, the, you know, the quality of the, the test affects the quality of the data that scientists are using to, to make some of these predictions and, and some of these models. And so one of the issues is because there are so many different tests coming forward at the same time um, that they're of, of variable quality. Um, and so, you know, the county had actually shut down an antibody testing center that had, had popped up uh, last week. So Paul Sasan had written a story about that. So that's, uh, you know, when, when people are trying to move really quickly to gather data, uh, there's always the issue of, of the quality of the data that you're getting so fast. Yeah, that's the kind of, you know, problem here is that we were kind of surprised. So it's going to take a while for the entire kind of system to, you know, generate medicine. Because it's like, you know, how often does this happen where something suddenly happens without kind of any, you know, it's a novel virus. That's why we call it that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, hindsight is sometimes 2020, you can sort of point to particular statements and things people said in the past couple of years about the threat of a, a new pandemic. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a, I was reading a scientific paper from 2007 about SARS, which I think hit in, in 2002, 2003, and about the lessons learned from uh, from that outbreak. And then they sort of closed with this very prophetic, very, very prescient statement about how uh, the circulating coronaviruses, uh, family of coronaviruses is sort of a ticking time bomb for, for a new outbreak. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think there were some hints, but to some degree, any pandemic of this scale would, would have stressed the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, you're the Union Tribune's new biotech reporter. Uh, what's it like to start a new New York organization in the middle of a pandemic? It, it's kind of like trying to jump on a treadmill that's already going at 10 miles per hour or 15 miles per hour. Um, 
you know, when I had gotten hired for the job, I, I spoke to my editor about sort of a tentative plan for how I could get up to speed and do the kinds of things you do when you start a new job and meet people, make contacts, develop relationships. And so I've had to do all of that, I think, much more quickly than we originally planned. And I've also had to do all of that remotely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, you and I would probably be talking in person uh, as opposed to via Slack or, or, or remotely mm-hmm. under normal circumstances. But, uh, and, and, you know, the same is true for uh, trying to get connected to the different research institutes and companies, you know, people I would typically just mm-hmm. drive over to, to, you know, shake their hand. That's the last thing yeah. you would want to do right now. And, and uh, I think for the, for the near future, that's um, going to be the case, but people have been really friendly and I'm, uh, you know, sort of chomping at the bit to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on. And we certainly need your journalism at this time. Jonathan Wozen, thank you so much. Anytime. Take care. Now your coronavirus update. San Diego County health officials logged another 57 cases of COVID-19, bringing the current positive case count to 2,325. An 80-year-old woman was confirmed to have died from the virus, bringing the current death toll to 72. Dr. Wilma Wooten, the county's public health officer, said the percentage of people who have tested positive for the virus has trended downward over the last 14 days and hospitalizations have been trending down too. That's a good sign, she said, but there is still work to be done before the county can resume regular activities. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher outlined several things the county is working to achieve before restrictions can be lifted. Those include increasing testing capacity and the ability to better trace and track sick people and those that they have come in contact with. Officials also need to develop a plan for reinstating restrictions if, once the health order is lifted, a surge in cases were to occur. In the coming days, the county will also be asking cities to come up with plans to partially reopen parks and similar recreation areas. These plans will need to include sanitation procedures and proposed methods of enforcing social distancing rules. Following this weekend's protests against the stay-at-home order, San Diego police and sheriff released a joint statement explaining the, quote, delicate balance they face when it comes to enforcement. Several hundred people demonstrated in downtown San Diego on Saturday, and a second group protested in Encinitas on Sunday. Many protesters were not wearing faith coverings or practicing social distancing. The county has prohibited gatherings of any size to try to prevent the spread of the virus that causes COVID-19. Despite the presence of law enforcement officers, no one was cited at either event. San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner announced the city's park would be partially reopened Tuesday. Larger recreation areas like beaches, boardwalks, and golf courses will remain closed, however. The mayor said that parks will be open for individual and passive use, so gathering in groups and sports are still banned. A Chinese billionaire with ties to San Diego has donated half a million masks and goggles to UC San Diego. Joseph Tsai and his wife Clara have made similar donations to New York City hospitals. Some of the $1.6 million in supplies are being rushed to Sharp Medical Center Chula Vista, which has a critical need for the equipment. Tsai imported the supplies from China, where he built his fortune as co-founder of Alibaba, the world's largest e-commerce company. He is the firm's executive vice chairman. Tsai also owns sports franchises, including the NBA's Brooklyn Nets and the San Diego Seals, a professional lacrosse team. More than 1,000 bottles of hand sanitizer will be distributed to people staying in the San Diego Convention Center. RPP Products, a motor oil and lubricant company, made the 250 gallons of hand sanitizer. 
And finally, one last thing. I think that when you perform your music to help people on the internet, that is a wonderful thing because everyone has access to the internet. But people don't get to hear live music anymore and they're just really dying to hear that. So I've always wanted to have the guts to stand on my porch and just unleash my voice. That's opera singer Victoria Robertson. On Sunday, Robertson performed on a North Park porch as part of her separate but together concerts. She started on Easter Sunday and plans to do more as opportunities for live music dwindle because of the virus. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. We want to remind you that information is your first line of defense. The San Diego Union Tribune is dedicated to bringing you the latest news in print, online, and on our podcasts. Right now, you can read our public health stories related to the virus online for free without hitting the paywall. But you can get all of your news at your fingertips, wherever, whatever you want, if you're a subscriber. Don't miss a story. Go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.